welcome to Voice. My name is Stephanie Rodriguez and I'm your host. With us today we have Hugo Miranda. Hugo was born and raised in Costa Rica. He moved to the U.S. to learn English and graduate from high school. And after majoring in English literature, he returned to Costa Rica where he taught English as a second language for four years. There, he was later awarded a scholarship to learn Mandarin in Taiwan. He gained valuable experience teaching and learning languages. And after returning to California, he taught Spanish and Chinese to children while he completed a bachelor's in linguistics. Before graduating, he was hired by a major game publisher as a language specialist in Latin American Spanish. After 10 years in the industry, he decided to move to the fitness world where he works as a localization project manager. Hi, Ugo. Welcome to Voice. It's so nice to have you on here. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, absolutely. I'm so happy that we're finally having this conversation. I know we've had it on the calendar for a bit of time, so it's so good to have it. And I'm really excited to dive into the very impressive fact of you being trilingual. Um, So I'd like to start with you sharing a bit about your love of languages and your journey through um, learning these languages. Of course. Um, I think that my earliest recollection of learning languages uh, began with me watching cartoons. And the picture I want to bring up is uh, the Roadrunner. And the mm-hmm. Roadrunner signs, you remember the Roadrunner cartoons and mm-hmm. coy- the coyote would bring up something up and and it would have something written on it. And what would happen at the time in my country was that they would put a voiceover on that in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So then I would, you know, I would make the connection. Oh, so that means this. And so I would go around and brag about it, say, hey, I know how to say this right Mm -hmm. and it made me feel really proud because I felt like oh I was catching on to things really quickly absolutely and it I I did that for a number of years and all along I I thought that wow I was getting really good in English right until Mm -hmm. one time uh, I wanted to brag about about it to one of my relatives who knew a little more English or had studied somewhere. I don't know. It was not an expert for sure. And then I said, hey, I know how to say this word in English. And at the time I said, it's apple. And then she laughed at me and you make me feel so bad, but what, what's wrong with it? And then she just kept repeating the way I pronounced it. Oh. And what happened was that I was just reading the way I would read it uh, in Spanish. So the word was apple, Mm -hmm. but I was reading it as in, you know, the way I would, I would internalize it, right? Of course. And so it made me feel so bad. But anyway, it's just one of those things that I often go back and remember. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that uh, my point was that uh, at that time, my interest for languages went undetected for like the longest time, for years and years. Uh, No one in my family came out and said, maybe 
we should put him on foreign language classes, or maybe we should get him uh, a book or, or something like that. So it went undetected. So something I just carried uh, deep in my heart is that when I detect someone is good at language, I'm quick to point it out. And mm-hmm. well, you got something. You got something. <laughs> Nourishing. And so... You know, through the years, I eventually I migrated to the U.S. When, when my dad moved to California. Mm-hmm. And that's when I began going to high school. I started high school here. Mm-hmm. And I think this it just started from there. I went to ESO classes in high school. Um, and it, it, I think it, things started picking up speed when I started reading. I made an attempt at reading a book in English. Mm-hmm. And it was a book that was on my teacher's table. And, you know, it had this skeleton, a dinosaur skeleton on it. And I was like, what is this? So I picked it up and flipped the pages. And all of a sudden I said, I read Punta Arenas, which is uh, uh, like a, a beach town mm-hmm. uh, where I'm from in Costa Rica. And I knew that there were only two Punta Arenas in the world. One is in Argentina, I believe, or Chile. And the other one was in Costa Rica, so I want to make sure which one it was. And it mm-hmm. turned out it was in Costa Rica, so I read that book really, really quickly. Wow. So all in all, uh, I, I graduated high school, and I began my studies in uh, English honors at the university. Uh, and at the time, because I have visa issues, I had to return to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, when I landed there, I envisioned myself uh, becoming a teacher. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was good enough at that time to start teaching ESL. And I did that for about four years until I saw an opportunity to apply for a scholarship in Taiwan mm-hmm. and learn Mandarin Chinese. Wow. And basically that took me there for about five years until I returned to the U.S. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. What a journey. And also to to have the opportunity to study in California, to go to Taiwan. Um, And how long were you in Taiwan for? About five years. I will never forget it because I landed there uh, in, I think it was... October, late October, early September of 2001. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was a, 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 the year um, of 9-11. Mm-hmm. So I remember exactly where I was when that occurred. So from your personal experience um, and in your opinion, which of the two languages was the most difficult to acquire? Um... Mm, that's a good question. <laughs> I think no one has ever asked me about that. Um, I think there were maybe English. It's it's a little more difficult in terms of pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, one thing that's, I remember the most is um, that I was really scared of learning Mandarin. Mm-hmm. And I had told my dad that uh, I wasn't sure if I was ready because all I had heard was that it was a very difficult language. Right. And of course, I had never heard of that, uh, that of English. And, 
you know, he, he soothed me by saying that, uh, well, this is their language, so they must know how to teach it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, that's one of the things that just stuck in, into my mind. And when I got there, uh, it was just all new and it was very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I remember trying very hard at getting the tones in the syllables right. correctly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it took me about a year of failing um, to communicate just, you know, two words together, three words mm-hmm. together, mm-hmm. because the tones also change when you put words together, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it took me about a year. And then all of a sudden, one morning, I just woke up and it just snapped. It just oh, that's the way it's supposed to sound. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, That's a conversation that I've had with my students many times. So many of my students are, um, you know, they're either language they're learning um spanish as a second language or they're heritage spanish speakers and you know there there is a difference as to how you approach the language and you know going back to your story of how you pronounced apple for example um if someone is recasting you or telling you that's incorrect um and almost you know, poking at you for it, it's really hard to bounce back from that. So I always say to my students, and I've heard this in the past, I can't remember when or where, but it basically made um, the comparison of when you're learning a language and you come in contact with someone who is either a native speaker or would be an advanced speaker in that language, um, you would wish that they would tell you almost what the attire is for the party you know, Mm -hmm. and they tell you what the attire is. And then if you don't understand that, that they kind of say, oh, don't worry, I can lend you an outfit if you need Mm -hmm. it. So you feel comfortable and you are dressing for the appropriate attire, the appropriate um, or the requested attire for that event. Um, So I always think of that with language learning and and how it goes and it. You know, everyone has a different story and a different experience, um, but it's really interesting. So thank you for that. I I really appreciate that. And, you know, I I know in previous chats that we've had together, you mentioned that speaking another language is like having a superpower. Um, so how has this influenced you building a trilingual home and also in you being a trilingual parent? Wow, that's a... That's a I have a huge answer, answer for that. <laughs> um, in terms of being a, a superpower... I, I want to bring another image to, to our conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the movie The Matrix, right? Mm-hmm. And there is that scene. I hope it's not a spoiler. There is that scene towards the end that shows a Neo facing the three agents. And mm-hmm. it looks, you know, the way people look in the real world. Mm-hmm. And then... All of a sudden, when he realizes he's got the power, he looks at them and he sees everything like in the green code, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, that image precisely there is what I would put monolinguals and bilingual, multilingual people. Mm. 
so in a way you see things and you see you think you're just seeing through air and you see normal images but then when you have the ability to speak another language you cannot you can kind of see through the matrix i love that that right? i've never heard that before and that's incredible I, I have yeah. to work on this meme and I have <laughs> to make it and just put bilingual person or something like that. Yeah, like that. you have to share that with me once you, <laughs> you have it down. I would love to see that. Absolutely. So going back to the to the superpower, uh, when when I see people in from different cultures talking to each other, and it happens a lot uh, in my household that uh, we are uh, Chinese speakers. And also when we have to deal with a person who speaks Spanish uh, as a native language. And I can just see where each one is coming from. And they're just trying so hard to communicate and get passed through the words. And being polite about it, right? And sometimes uh, they just go in a different direction. Because they just don't, the, the habit of being in that culture pushes them go in that direction. Mm-hmm. So they just sometimes they need a little help, and you know you have to pull pull them back in into the conversation. Oh, this is exactly what we're talking about, or I know how you feel, but we can put that aside and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so realizing that power, and after uh, going through. Uh, university and learning linguistics after coming back from Taiwan. Um, and after beginning to start planning for a family, I thought that that was a, if that was something that I could pass on to my children was that superpower. I have to pass on the ability of speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm, and that's when I, that's when I began to uh what i what i call uh speaking to tummies <laughs> speaking to the tummy uh and uh right around the stage where the ears begin to form i mm-hmm. i don't remember what month it is precisely right now but right around that stage i just began speaking uh to my wife's tummy oh. <laughs> right Very and good. it was so difficult to just speak without getting a response from anyone. My wife is not understanding it. Mm -hmm. So it's like speaking to the walls. And it is a very, very difficult uh, period to go through because you have to get used to basically talking to yourself. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you're a little bit crazy. (laughs) But that is very a very crucial uh, training, I would say, or period to go through. Because you're going to be doing it for another two or three years after the baby is born. Right. And that's all that he or she needs to start internalizing, you know, things like phonetics, mm-hmm. uh, intonation, and grammar. And so what happens to uh, a lot of parents, they, they find it very difficult to go, to go through that stage. And they just think it's, it's useless. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not getting any response back so uh, and they don't see any results until way way much later in three years it's it's a it's a lifetime it's a long time to be waiting for a result so uh, we pushed through that and my wife was doing the same thing in mandarin chinese 
And well, I, all this is about 11, almost 12. And he just had the habit of speaking Spanish to me in the same as my daughter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's incredible. Going through that experience, uh, uh, it just taught me a lot about how I would, I feel passionate about the topic, the subject. And that pushed me into wanting to teach all the languages, especially and particularly at that stage, you know, mm -hmm. 18 months, which actually 18 months is already a little bit old, right? Mm -hmm. But encouraging all the parents to do that, start doing that at the same time and how I achieved it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And yeah, I agree. I think it's just taking, it's, it's uncomfortable at first. You're not getting a response. And as humans, we really do crave that immediate response or reaction from, from the person you're chatting with and, and not getting that and having to wait that three-year mark. Um, yeah, it could be just un very uncomfortable for the person. Um, mm -hmm. And then with that, I know that you, you've also worked with um, other children in that are multilingual as well, or your children's um, classmates. Uh, oh, yes. Yes, you're right. You're right. Thank you for reminding me. Of course, of course. So basically, so we, we started this little project when my kids were born, and I got them to a point where they were fluent uh, orally. But then they were lacking. They were lacking behind in uh, in writing, mm -hmm. right? So I needed to do something. I I I purchased some simple books so that they could start copying words down. Uh, but it was not fun. I mean, just writing things down and you, you putting putting myself on their feet. It's like, uh, why am I doing this? I don't find any purpose to this. Mm -hmm. So that's when I had when I started thinking, and I said, uh, "I have to show them that this is useful. I have to show them that others are interested in mm -hmm. learning another language, and that they have an advantage because they can learn it at home." Mm -hmm. So that's when I came up with the idea of quote unquote the little club or the club, the Spanish club, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, we ex expressed the idea to some of our friends and we told them that, hey, we want to get this started because so-and-so uh, you know, has to start learning writing and he and she need a little bit of encouragement. They, right. they need a little bit of a community, right? Mm -hmm. And then to other to our, our friends it made a lot of sense because they did not speak spanish at home and they were they were not doing really well uh, they were not doing well in their spanish in school mm -hmm. which was supposed to be like a very easy spanish right. it was for my kids so we started meeting and i, I did not have any materials prepared for it uh, we just started doing a lot of speaking the way, you know, I, the way I learned how humans learn a language first by listening, internalizing phonetics and grammar and so on. And then getting into the, you know, writing uh, sentences and things like that. Right, right. And so the, the program started growing just by, about by word of mouth. 
And that became one of my pet projects for the weekends. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I began designing books for them. Uh, I started making recordings for them because, of course, a lesson that is maybe an hour on the weekend, it's not nearly enough. They need to hear it more. Mm-hmm. They need to speak it and practice it. Yes. But who are they going to practice it with at home? So I, I gave them uh, the homework that was uh, recording. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult to get them to do uh, a recording for homework. I mean, it's nobody does that, right, oh, yeah. for any other subjects. And there's the uh, technology, you know, uh, hurdle that you have to go through okay you have if you have this device you have to go here to record and and Mm -hmm. whatnot but we just pushed through that barrier and very quickly actually they learned to do it on their own wow so uh, little by little recording started getting longer listenings and then i incorporated all the stories that they had to listen to and whatnot so they started growing and growing into Uh, I have about, I think, 14 little pamphlets of 10 lessons each. And it all just grew from uh, this little project that I I wanted my kids to feel the the need, the Mm -hmm. usefulness. Honestly, that's incredible. What a unique way to have bilinguals um, engage. And also, it's just such an enriching um, environment and experience for them that Unfortunately, not many students or children have that access to to um, a, a Spanish club or a language program as, as that. So that, that really is incredible. And so then this leads me more career focused. Um, you then begin your career in localization as an, and as a language specialist. So how did that start? So um... After I returned to California from Taiwan, um, I really did not know uh, what career choices I had. So I began looking around to what was available at the time. And the first thing that popped up that I applied for and I got uh, successfully hired for was a online gaming company. Mm-hmm. And it was games like Bejeweled and, and Zuma that they were, at the time, they were called skill games that you have to have a certain kind of skill, you know, right, to recognize things quickly on a screen to make points. And at the time, you could actually make money out of those back right. then when that was illegal. Mm-hmm. But uh, the rationale came through this. So... I I already had Spanish with me and I had come back with Chinese and I knew English. So I had the language side there. And then uh, uh, growing up, I I was very familiar with games like Mm -hmm. the uh, the Atari console, the Nintendo console. So uh, my dad living in the U.S., he had sent those consoles back. So we would play those games. you know, on the weekends, like many, many hours. Mm -hmm. So I put those two things together and I got that first job. And it was a a Spanish website, QA and translator. Mm -hmm. Uh, After that, 
the, the company just got purchased and it, it got shut down. It didn't last long. And I took, I, I jumped into a banking uh, experience that uh, I did a little bit of uh, credit card transactions, but also I managed a website in two of the, in two languages, in traditional Chinese and mm -hmm. Spanish. Mm. Uh, after that, uh, I think that was when the 2008 uh, slowdown came, came down and I went back to the university. Honestly, I had never heard of the field of linguistics. Mm -hmm. Even that, even then, and uh, all of a sudden, I just, I just fell in love with the, with the subject. Uh, it took me two years just to finish my degree, and maybe about a month before graduating, I applied to a local company that was hiring for language QA, mm -hmm. and uh, of course, come a, a coming from linguistics that. That's something that popped into their eyes as something that they wanted, even though, honestly, they did not know what that entailed either. Right. But uh, I went into that company, and very soon uh, after knowing the ins and outs of the games, how to maneuver and understand how they work, mm -hmm. I became a language specialist. Wow. At that time, they called it an editor, but that was basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. And basically, it entailed uh, getting translations from a translation company mm -hmm. and then revising those. Basically, knowing if that, was, if that translation was good uh, for 20 plus countries. Right. Into Latin American Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. And it involved uh, translation and also voiceover. Okay. And you know how, uh, you know, we all have our particular accents too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I had to learn uh, as to what was the recommended accent or tone that we should use in our video games. And during that time, I worked on amazing projects. Uh, I worked on projects such as Diablo 3 and Overwatch and Hearthstone. And in Overwatch, uh, actually one of my fondest memories is how we made the voiceover for Latin American Spanish. Yeah, I agree. And I think unless you're doing the LQAs, it's not a conversation that's often had. And it's so important in the translation world in terms of ensuring accuracy and um a certain standard of quality. So I'm thinking also in Latin American Spanish and it being spoken in over 20 different countries, each of them has its own idiosyncrasies. So how do you avoid using idioms, regionalisms, and cultural references in, in your work? Oh, that's such a, that's such a good question. I think I think we should open a forum about this topic <laughs> because there's so much there's there's a little bit of love and a little bit of hate in mm -hmm. in what we call the neutral Spanish and respecting the other varietals of Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. But 
you know, when it comes to a, a video game, or at least the ones that we worked on, uh, the projects that we worked on, we had to uh, center ourselves in one variety, which was the neutral uh, Spanish, so that everyone would be able to understand it, would be able to sync up to one meaning and avoid other meanings, right? Mm -hmm. avoid, avoid confusions. Right. And that is something that it's very, very difficult uh, yes. to attain for many native speakers. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, to understand or know when to avoid originalism, when to know what is regional and what is neutral, mm. right? And, you know, to give you an, uh, uh, an insight as to how languages work, and they kind of like go in concentric circles. So we got a, you know, it got myself, and then I got the people around me, and then I got the houses around me, the neighborhoods, the states around me, and the, the further away it gets from me, uh, the more different it gets right right and that is that is almost impossible to avoid we we want to belong to the place that we are in now so we speak in a certain way mm -hmm. and then that becomes a habit and then that becomes something that we love and that we have fun with when we talk to each other and then we start being creative about it and we mm -hmm. have different words for things and oh we love the way we speak Mm -hmm. And oh my! I was just talking to my dad today, and he told me uh, a couple of words that Salvadorians use for certain things, and it was so much fun to, to just <laughs> hear how how the, the what words they use, and I just adore hearing how other other Vararos of Spanish use oh, uh, their, their 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 language. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to a project, then we have to center into one okay so i think that i had an advantage and a geographical advantage because i grew up in costa rica and that is a very kind of middle of the road between north america and south america right mm -hmm. i mean it's kind of like in the middle and there is another advantage with which was uh, at the time and Costa Rica being a small country, we produce very little of uh, our own TV shows mm -hmm. or radio shows. So we would uh, import a lot of that from Mexico and mm -hmm. from Colombia and from Argentina. And, you know, there were radio shows like coming from Cuba, right? right. And there's also TV from Spain. And I don't know if... Uh, as I was growing up, my friends had the same feeling, but I just really enjoyed recognizing and pointing out, oh, yeah, this Spanish is from this region. Oh, this Spanish is from this region. This Spanish is from this region. But when you see it, you read a newspaper or listen to the news, you hear that they are not using the same language, right? Mm -hmm. Or when you hear a cartoon that's been dubbed, you hear that they that's not the way we speak here on the street, right. right? And at the time, I did not know that those shows were adopting Mexico and mm -hmm. then they were using neutral Spanish uh, to publish it all throughout 
uh, Latin America, right? Mm -hmm. So I just began making a difference, you know, basically putting things into compartments. Mm -hmm. This is what is regional to me, okay? And this is how they say it. So kind of like the way they say it, I think it's kind of like the way everybody would understand it. Right, right, right. That's a good observation. The, mm -hmm. as, as, I, as I left uh, Costa Rica and I had friends from uh, other Latin American speaking countries in the U.S., I started making more connections. And I just rejoiced in, in learning the, the words that they had and even imitating as to how, how, because it was just so much fun for me to learn that. Mm -hmm. And when I traveled through Taiwan, I also had the experience of knowing um, how to speak to someone so if I want to get a message uh, carried across clearly. Mm -hmm. But if I wanted to have some fun, we'll just say, oh, you know, and this and this is how we say it in our country. Right, right. And sometimes the conversation just carried on talking about how each one of us said things in their country. And that was just an evening, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, of course, because it's it really just, you get to know someone so much more by just knowing their type of communication or format of communication with um, their relatives or their friends and um, and how it changes from, from one to the other. So I, I think that that's very fascinating. And I've always been the same way too, of just looking at words that are used or even intonation when, when we're, um, so for example, where my family's from in Spain, we're known to sing our words. Um, so I, when I, I remember when I went to go study in Salamanca, they would all say to me, oh, that I had to end my sentences singing, whereas oh. everyone else would almost just end them. And mine was always this flowy um, singing. And I, I, I never thought of it that way because I was always surrounded by, I guess, others who, who sang their sentences or whatever it was. Um, so I always think that's very interesting. <laughs> yes, uh, um, that's very interesting how uh, people talk about that and then they make the association of, oh, they're, they are so cold because they speak like that. Right. When in fact, there is nothing cold or warm or hot about it. It's right. just, um, I don't know. It's just because it feels closer to you, closer to home. Then exactly. Uh, and if it's not closer to home, it sounds cold. And, you know, I think it's just not fair to. <laughs> mm, right. Of course not. Um, <laughs> it's simply that distinction between tonal and non-tonal languages. Um cultural differences in cultural gestures um differences in nonverbal communication um and i think it's really cool the project that you took on in observing the differences between regional spanishes versus neutral spanish and i'm sure that in itself was a pretty big challenge um interesting but certainly big. And I'm curious as to other challenges that you face on a daily basis as a language specialist um, in the world of localization. And how do you tackle um, these challenges that may arise? Or how do you troubleshoot these potential issues? Oh, wow. So in my current role, I, I am no longer a language specialist. 
I decided mm-hmm. to move a little bit higher and decided to step into a project management position still within localization, mm-hmm. right? So I get to interact with, uh, on one side, uh, stakeholders that are usually uh, English speakers, uh, say like writers that mm-hmm. write uh, marketing campaigns, for example, or the design a, a series of videos for mm-hmm. a campaign in, for different formats. That's on one side. On the other side, I have the linguist who I deliver assignments to. Uh, basically, we need to get this uh, translations done for uh, subtitles or for websites and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I think that the most difficult thing for for me has been uh, bridging the gap as to why things are important to one territory or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not something that I can just explain in one sentence and wham, everybody just gets it. Mm-hmm. Because we, we're not in the context. We're not in context of knowing how the person feels speaking that language, right? So it's the difficult part is trying to import that idea into a territory, right? And to the people in that territory, right? It's something uh, that just happened recently. Uh, that there are things, uh, there are very delicate meanings, and they're very, they're very, very specific, okay. And there was a linguist who made a change on a translation. And basically, we were trying to say trusty, you know, Mm -hmm. something that is reliable, trusty. And the linguist was battling between a good, you know, Mm -hmm. a good, reliable something and a loyal something. So the, the English speaker saw it as being, well, what is the difference between a good and loyal? Well, I don't want to use loyal here because that's not really the idea I want to convey, mm-hmm. right? And I said, well, where did you get those translations from? <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's good to know what the actual meanings of things are, right? But the minute, and is this such a subtle difference? But what happens is that you're jumping from one universe to another without mm-hmm. realizing it. Right. So you're, you took the meanings of those two words into another language, and then you're analyzing them in this other mm-hmm. universe. That is not where the person is coming from. Right. And it's such a subtle yet a huge jump that you're, you're making from one side to another. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just um, it's, it's not so easy to explain that because not everyone has the ability to speak metalinguistically. In other words, use right. language to talk about language. Right. Uh, right. And so trying to convey that idea takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of passion. It takes a lot of first giving them, you know, little bits of information to get their attention, to get them interested into mm-hmm. what the other language is thinking. 
because for for a lot of people they just put a mental block right right we we have internalized language like when i just said earlier from very very early ages that we we had no recollection as to how we learned them right we had no logic at the time so if something changes into another language all of a sudden well oh, i don't know mm -hmm. right so a lot of my job is also passing on that passion and showing what is interesting about what i do why i like it right. and showing that is it's not so difficult like say you know japanese looks like a very very complicated language to understand mm -hmm. Because they use at least three different writing systems, mm -hmm. but I think it's kind of neat, and I've, I've discussed that today. When you uh, talk about, you know, it's not so difficult. It's just that they use three different systems, and they right. might look the same to you, but these actually look more pointy, and this more roundy, and this this more look more complicated. Those are the three systems that they're using, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they go, like, "Huh." Okay, I did not know that, <laughs> right? So maybe it's not something that you're going to go and use in their daily lives, but I got their attention so that I can pass on my message, right? Make them feel how passionate I feel about what I'm doing and thus showing them that that is important to me. And people usually respect what is important to other people, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. absolutely exactly what what you what you mentioned about importing that idea um and i think in terms of language learning and with translation and interpreting or um studying to be a language specialist theory takes us and we we absolutely do need it but it only takes us so far and then you really do need that practical exposure or that practical approach to fully understand the topic to fully grasp the idea of 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 what is being taught um and like with any passion project if you're really doing that thorough research and um, driving that project, I think that draws interest from from others who might have a hint of interest to begin with. Um, and especially with students who do have, as you mentioned, that superpower of speaking another language or multiple languages um, and are thinking, what can I do? What comes next? Um, I think that's really important. So this leads me to the last segment of our conversation um and that is tips and tricks for our our students or pieces of advice as to what advice would you give to current students who are studying languages or studying translation and interpreting and interested in the localization world um or to recent graduates inter interested in localization what would you advise hmm So um, being bilingual or multilingual it just basically means that you're, you're, you're sensitive uh, in, in a particular area more than others, right? 
And some people are good at languages, some people are good at math, right? Mm-hmm. You're just more sensitive to that. Uh, so I think for, for that reason, em- embracing uh, your skill and most important, communicating it, uh, mm-hmm. sharing it with others. Uh, I think that the academic uh, institutions are very good at preparing students for future careers in terms of mm-hmm. skill, uh, tools, getting a mindset. Right. Right. Um, and that is crucial. That is necessary. What I feel it's also important is having the urge of sharing your passion with others. Mm-hmm. Just like I was saying earlier, so that you can get your coworkers to be more like your partners mm-hmm. and not, not just being a, an occupation. Right. right. So, and I think that sometimes it's something that we, we, especially when it comes to languages and someone that was raised in a different culture, I kept that inside of me. I kept it, I kept the interest for languages, the passion I had for them. I did not really talk too much about it until recently. Mm-hmm. Um, for once, I was, I was a bit ashamed at having an accent in English. I would think that, oh, people don't, uh, they're probably not interested in listening to me because I don't sound like, like that, you know, like, mm-hmm. like a native speaker. Right. And so I, it took me a long time to embrace that I was seeing things with a different clarity than others. Mm-hmm. And that I see others doing the same thing. Uh, an example of that is how, it, where I live, there are many Spanish speakers, but they would only speak Spanish at home. Mm-hmm. And they don't speak it outside, or they don't speak it to people they're not familiar with. And they just keep it inside, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like in the same way that I did. I just kept that inside and I did not share the passion or the things. I did not think anybody else was interested in it. But I just found that it was more useful uh, to share it. Mm-hmm. Number one, to find, to find people who thought alike and to find partners at work that would help me do the work I do. You know, all the things that uh, like come with the trade are relatively easy, right? Mm-hmm. But when you work with people, you have to work with uh, uh, relationships. Right. Uh, and so the connections that you can make with what you do and the passion you have and sharing it with others, showing it to others, I think that can go a, a long way. I love that. I think that's such a a beautiful way to end our conversation today. Um, And I thank you so very much for sharing your your passion about the field and your expertise of um, being a language specialist and localization. Um, And I really do think that this will resonate with many of our listeners. Um, 
and especially your journey through language learning and language acquisition. Um, many have either gone through this or are going through um, the experiences that you've mentioned. And I think um, it's great to hear from someone else. So thank you. And I, I truly look forward to future conversations with you. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for making this space. And, you know, it's incredible what you're doing for, for your students. Thank you. Uh, let me know if they have any questions. And I would love to sync up on that at some other time. Absolutely. That would be wonderful. Thank you for offering that. Um, so thank you. And we'll chat soon. Hasta luego. Bye. Adios. The Lives in Translation program was created by a seed grant from the Office of Chancellor Nancy Cantor to Jennifer Austin, John Keane, Fran Barkowski, Andrew Gupta, and Tim Raphael. Special thank you to the School of Arts and Sciences Dean's Office, the Spanish and Portuguese Department at Rutgers University, Newark, previous chair of the Spanish and Portuguese Department, Kim Holton, and current chair of the Spanish and Portuguese Department, Jason Cortez. Graphic Arts by Chantal Fishthang from the Design Consortium and Gisela Ochoa. To Program Advisors Anna Dichter, Radel Rijo, Randy Maldobom, and Jennifer Austin. Sound Engineering by Isaac Jimenez and music by Jose Luis Iglesias. If you've enjoyed this episode, share with a friend and subscribe wherever you listen to. Thanks for listening to Voice. This is Stephanie Rodriguez.